We're going to be reading Hebrews 13, um, the whole chapter. The brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for, do, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners of us chained with them, those, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also. Marriage is unaudible among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we, may, so we may boldly say, the Lord is a helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought you up, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words, knowing that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, who, those, who, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. <laughs> well, this will be our uh, last uh, sermon in this 
series of going through Hebrews. This has been a, a, a meaty book, as you know. Uh, the writer has had a lot to say about several very uh, weighty subjects and subjects in which uh, is not delved into to this depth anywhere else. The writer has taken great care in this closing chapter, chapter 13 in our Bibles, to shepherd weary and possibly wounded souls while pointing to the great shepherd and giving him all the glory for his shepherding of our hearts. I say weary and possibly wounded souls because the of the context which we started out when we first were getting into this this book, this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, they were a persecuted, scattered, beat down people. And some were, it seemed, uh, I don't know, maybe withdrawn or just disconnected. Uh, we saw that Throughout a couple times during the text, they were exhorted to, to not forsake meeting together. Just give that as an example that there's an indication of the, uh, of the, those receiving this letter. Uh, they were having a tough time, and these were people that, by and large, were not new believers. They weren't Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas had just reached. These were believers that had come. Uh, to hear the message of the gospel in the context of, of a long-term, robust Jewish faith, even though in the midst of the Roman uh, occupation. And we find that they were being tempted to fall back on familiar ground, thought, faith. And so, uh, in in alerting them to this and warning them that the writer has, has really had some strong exhortations. <clears throat> Yet when he gets to this 13th chapter, we find him just going through a, quite a list, sometimes just you know, one verse, one thought per verse, uh, several, several instances of this as, he, as we work down. And, and so he's gently admonished them on several points. Some of them new points right up here. Some reminders. From, you know, I think he's intending to, in doing this, to remind them of the lengthy exhortations in the previous chapters. But he admonishes them on several points, but also offering comfort, courage, and hope from the promises of the word as well. He even went gently rebuking. He was also reminding of the privileges and blessings, as well as the responsibilities of entering the better covenant with a single mind. Might just let that thought press in that this is one of the things that they were struggling with. They were they were weighing go back. So they're, they're weighing this and Paul or, Paul or whoever wrote this, we're not sure 
has made a strong point throughout. Jesus is better. I use that word. That's not to say Jesus is a little bit better. What he's had to say makes it clear that this is the new covenant and the old one is obsolete. It's passing away. You know, be anchored in Christ. The ship you've been on is going down. And so as we look at the final eight verses, verses 18 through 25, we'll see calls for engagement in prayer while also praying for them and blessing them. Calls for sharing in the gospel ministry and warmly drawing them into it. And as we shall see, the author has very carefully chosen his words for a challenging subject to address in this chapter, going out of his way to make a difficult pill go down smoothly. We will consider verses 18 and 19 together. This was a request for their prayer. Then verses 20 and 21 together, which is a kind of a prayer and a a benediction, a blessing upon them. After that, we will look at verse 22 separately, which does seem like a, a separate verse dropped in. And then we'll take verses 23 and 25 together. So before we get started, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your eternal word. We thank you, Lord, for the eternal word with you the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, having come in the flesh, bearing our sin outside the camp, and then being raised. Raised by the glory of the Father. Raised and received into glory. And is now seated at your right hand, interceding for us. We thank you, Lord, for your written word that you have given us, a record of a revealing of who you are and of your, your dealings with the sons of men. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy shown to us. And we thank you for this letter to the Hebrews that has revealed much about that, some some unique things with respect to the rest of the scriptures. We thank you for all of your word that that reveals in a multifaceted, multi-authored way your multifaceted salvation character. And yet, you're one. And the message is one. And we thank you, Lord, for the reliability of it. We pray for your blessing on it today as we endeavor to, to speak it. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in 
verse 18, taking verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Does that strike any of you a little odd? It did me. Uh, I just want (laughs) to acknowledge that and actually uh, hopefully bring you along in in a in a uh, process that the Lord used to to lead me to a to an understanding uh, not only of this text but how it sits in the previous verses. Have you ever have you ever uh, been uh, searching for something, perhaps not even knowing exactly what you're searching for? This happens a lot in our home. Uh, I'm one that just goes off looking for just the right thing to, to take care of something or other, uh, some tiny little impromptu project. And my wife will often ask me, so what are you looking for? She's, she keeps track of a lot of things and is curious as well, and so she'll often want me to, to let her know. Maybe she knows where it is. But I don't know what it is. I can't tell her what I'm looking for. All I can say is I, I think I'll recognize it when I find it, but I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that will help me fix such and such. <clears throat> so off I go looking. I don't know if any of you have done that, but <clears throat> I've done that a lot. And a few of those times, while I'm off looking for one thing, I'll find something else. And perhaps it's something I had forgotten or been looking for for a long time. And Well, here it is. So uh, my project is immediately replaced and I'm, I'm following something else. <clears throat> That's a little bit of what happened here. Because as I began to, to look and uh, just puzzle and I think just expecting perhaps the Lord will help me. I was asking, help, help me to understand what this is. Because the way it struck me is pray for us for we are confident that we have a good conscience and all things desire to live honorably. That just really struck me funny. I didn't understand that. Why did he say pray for us and then what struck me is pray for us and then immediately saying, but we're doing fine. In fact, we have a good conscience and, and uh, we're living honorably and you know, we don't need prayer. <laughs> kind of the unspoken conclusion is like, so, so why did he just say, I pray for us? Because he then follows it with, but I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to thee sooner. Well, that didn't help me, my thinking about it. I, st- I still think what's between pray for us and, but I especially urge you. How's that fit? Why did he say that? This is the word of God. Every word profitable, right? That's the challenge for me. And so as I began to pray and search, this is what I stumbled upon. 
I was looking for one thing and found something else. The word for uh, confident, or some translations, trust. And I even found one translation, I can't remember for sure, I think maybe the ASV, that said we are persuaded. <clears throat> and that was the word that was most helpful to me and is actually a, a major part of the meaning. Let me read you to uh, one uh, uh, definition of this word. And I just want to mention, uh, the point is not to drag us deep into Greek, not at all. I'm not qualified for that anyway. But I do have some tools <laughs> to help me understand it. And, <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's because it really makes a difference here in the text. Uh, that word, therefore, uh, pray for us, for we trust, or we are confident, or we are persuaded. <clears throat> In this, particularly in this uh, context of this verse, means to allow oneself to be persuaded or convinced, to be persuaded in favor of anyone, to yield assent to, obey, or trust him. And yet he's speaking this about himself or themselves. So. He's allowed himself to be persuaded that he has a good conscience, that they have a good conscience, and that they are in all things desiring to live honorably. Same word, for example, is, you know, for I'm persuaded, uh, different things in the scriptures that you you could hear Paul saying, I know who I have believed and am persuaded. He is able. <clears throat> well, <laughs> and this is how, in looking for one thing, I discovered something else. The particular uh, helpful tool that I use, uh, I find it very helpful in that it, it shows when you look on a word, if you're looking for the, for the meaning, like, like I just read to you, it also has a little window on my computer that shows all the verses uh, in, in this case, the New Testament for Greek that <clears throat> that uh, where that same word is is used, and uh, I immediately noticed in the list that it's also used in the verse before. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. Obey. That's the word. And that, that has the sense of this persuading. Now, doesn't, initially in our English language, those seems very different thoughts. But it's the sense that having been convinced, persuaded... You're persuaded to a point where you confidently obey with trust. That's what's getting at. So then, I clicked on 
the word rule. And I, I'm not even sure, I can't even remember why I did this, <laughs> but I did. Those who rule over you. It's a whole phrase. You know, this is out of uh, New King James Version. King James does the same thing. <clears throat> Most other versions will say leaders, which is really more to the point. Let me locate this. I apologize. I seem to have uh, got things out of order. Well, I'll just go with what I can recall. That... Uh, what struck me about that is that when I, when I look at that, I see verse 7, verse 17, and verse 24, all saying, using that same phrase, not obey, but those who rule over you, mean your leaders. And so I scroll down to look what followed, to see what other uses the first one I see is James 1, 2. Count it all joy. My first thought was, oh, somebody messed up on their programming. <laughs> you know, or got a, got a pointer wrong, and so it went off onto this other trail. Now we're talking about something totally different. And I, I looked on down, and it had several other uses of that same thing. That same sense of, I count it, I, I think, I'm assured. So I scrolled up earlier, and a couple tech, uh, verses even in Hebrews, and then the rest of the New Testament. Virtually all the others, there, there were a couple of places, but virtually all the others were uh, that sense of counting, accounting, <clears throat> thinking. So, at first I was confused, but when I, when I looked into the meaning, it, it, so, it, it so is tied to uh, uh, leading in the sense of, how do, you, how do you use that word and count it all joy? It's the sense of having uh, studied, it, you know, it kind of considered in your mind, and it has a sense of leading your thoughts out in front of yourself. To where you're, uh, you're persuaded, and you're confident. It, you you let your thoughts lead, even to the point of of, of uh, having a conclusion about someone leading, being uh, uh, having oversight, and so. I then ask, and I want you to just kind of ask with me, why, focusing on verse 17 for a minute, obey your leaders. The word obey could have been other words. There, there are other words that are stronger and to the point of you know, obeying you know, the word that you hear, you, you obey what you hear. Like obeying something that you just heard Christ say. 
You know, uh, you can imagine Peter, uh, you know, sometimes getting surprised with the Lord's command, but you know, at His word, you will obey. <clears throat> well, but that's not the word used here. And then leaders. There are other uh, words tra- translated leader, and meant more to the point of indicating someone in charge, someone set over. There's a couple different words there. One, for example, uh, when Peter speaks of uh, shepherding the flock, serving as overseers, in 1 Peter 5, that's one other word for rule. But especially, consider 1 Thessalonians 5.12. And would you turn there with me for a minute? We'll, we'll very shortly come back to the text, but this is this is what helps to understand uh, something the writer is trying to accomplish in the text. In verse 12 and 13, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That, that word there. That is yet another word for uh, rule, being over. So again, this is the question. Why three times in this chapter 13 he speaks of the leaders and three times he chooses a word that that has not the, the strong impact, the emphasis on being over, but on the leading and connects to it when he says obey in verse 17, chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 17. The obedience is not, he doesn't choose a word that means this, okay, I hear something, I obey. But speaking of being persuaded. Persuaded about what? Persuaded that God is in charge and he has arranged things this way. And also being persuaded and I'm maybe getting ahead of myself. Let me hold off. There's another aspect that's in the text in verse 18. But I want us to see that three times, and remember that when, when something is repeated three times, it's, it's an intended emphasis. And this happens in this chapter three times. So let's be on the lookout then for why. Because it because here's, here's why we need to do this. The writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has a purpose in mind. Because the Holy Spirit has a purpose in mind. And so as this, these thoughts are being put down, the Spirit of God is inspiring even the choice of words to get a message through. Back in First Thessalonians five twelve, the next verse it says, uh, "We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly." Guess what? That word is the same word as obey in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Bringing out another aspect, the obedience is from an esteeming. And indeed, it's more than that. This is why I believe 
that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says in, in Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are confident, we are persuaded about ourselves that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. Because as he's writing it, he's, he said, obey your rulers, pray for us, because we are confident. Remember that the word confident, persuaded, it's the same as obey, verse 17. So as, as they're presented, it's a connection. It's, it's tied together. And the thought is this, that he's not suggesting obey those, obey your leaders in this, in this cold, hard fact sense. But that they are to be persuaded that they have a good conscience and are desired to live honorably. And because this makes a difference in how we regard one another in the body of Christ. And he's offering, right in the midst of this pray for us, how are they going to pray for him if they don't have confidence in them? the writer? If we would assume for a minute that it's Paul, uh, whoever it is, we've seen in some other places in this letter that that there's some opposition, there's some Judaizers at the very least who are stirring up and they don't have good things to say about Paul or whoever this is because they've taken the same stance as Paul. He's been very clear to say the new covenant has come. The old is passing away. It is obsolete. That doesn't sit well with a Judaizer. So he's being maligned. There's been a, a strong effort to separate in heart, to get them to to regard them not in a clear-hearted, loving way. So he's put forward in verse 18 their own confidence. And he's suggesting by the very wording that he uses that they ought to be persuaded, not not arm-twisting persuaded, but that they ought to go through the process of leading out their thoughts and considering. That's going to make a difference in how they regard this letter. Whether they can receive it or not. And it's also going to make a difference in how those that are leading him locally. Whether, they're, whether they are together in heart. That can't happen unless there is the confidence. Unless someone has gone through the process and concluded that we're confident that this leader has a good conscience and all things desire to live honorably. Obviously, this is not talking about some sense of, of uh, nitpicking perfection because we all need the Jesus Christ <laughs> as a Savior. That's not the point. The point is, how do we regard one another? So then when he says, I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you sooner, he's letting them know he wants to come. It's it's a way of tugging on the heartstrings and getting them to enter into prayer for them that they would ask God to bring them. And and there's this connection to uh, their not perfection but their sincerity.
So, I want us to see conclusion on that section that the choice of words has been uh, very careful and intentional. And it, has, and, it's, and it has been so prior to verse 18. And that 17 is connected to 18 in the words uh, used. So now, with that in mind, with those thoughts in mind, let's, let's go back over this uh, 18 and 19 and consider that it's a call to pray. He's tugging on their heartstrings. He's asked, he's, what's suggested in here is to call forth good memories when they were there, when they were last there. The way that he conducted himself then the care and concern that he had then. And he's urging them to pray to that end with confidence that God will answer. And in so doing, he's drawing them to heart fellowship with him, something that has languished because these people are weary and scattered, if not physically, they're scattered in, in mind and they're heavy and disoriented. <clears throat> So in the process of calling them to prayer, he's telling them that he and his companions in gospel ministry are persuaded that they have a good conscience, desiring to conduct themselves honorably in all things. And though they might have been initially surprised, they would have, they would have noticed in their mother tongue, they would have noticed that he's using the same words and connected meanings that he had just used in 17. In verse 17, he's encouraging obedience because their leaders are called by God to watch for their souls and must give account, and that it is the right and profitable thing for them to do. But by his choice of words, the author is emphasizing the need for their obedience to also flow from their being persuaded that their leaders are sincerely desiring to conduct themselves honorably in all things with a good conscience. So the effect, then, is to drawing a drawing toward brotherly love, respect, and appreciation, and away from coldness, distance, and suspicion that can result from being battle-weary. And so to this exhortation is added the, the request for prayer in verses 18 and 19 for a speedy return to them that the author longs for and that he is encouraging them to long for. Prayer out of sincere love of the brethren. This is what's being uh, subtly communicated and maybe less subtly in, in the original language. Isn't it true in terms of prayer that it's hard to be distant towards someone you're praying for? I just want to ask <clears throat> to consider are you aware of distance in your heart between you and another brother or sister? I want to ask the question, does God want and do you want that distance removed? For the warmth of brotherly love to return, as he said at the very first of this closing chapter, his list of closing thoughts, let brotherly love continue. If so, If the Lord brings someone, a relationship to mine, then 
do these few things that I believe the Holy Spirit has prompted me to write down. Jot them down if, uh, if the Lord has uh, prompted you about this. First, read the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2. Just with thoughtful meditation. First five verses of Philippians chapter 2. And then read again the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And then go over again verses 4 through 7. In particular, after reading the whole of the chapter. And pause with each phrase. and ask the Spirit of the Lord to show you where you may have failed to love that other person with the love of Christ and to have the mind of Christ toward them. And then, in the spirit of these words in Hebrews 13, verses 17 and 18 in particular, begin to consider the reasons for being persuaded of that someone's sincere desire to conduct themselves honorably in all things with a good conscience toward God. What, it's, what that's not saying is to consider certain things that were done or said that were hurtful. We're, we're in this world together and we will do things like that. Every one of us to others. Consider, in particular, verses 4 through 7 in 1 Corinthians 13. Each phrase, and see how it might answer that as to whether we should focus on, grab hold of, hang on to some offense. Instead, begin to consider reasons for being persuaded of that someone's sincere desire to conduct themselves honorably in all things, and with a good conscience toward God. <clears throat> and then, then, out of new, renewed brotherly love in your heart, begin to pray for them, desiring their good. Pray for their good progress in their walk with God. And pray for opportunities to love and serve them. And see what happens. See what happens when you walk with the Lord in the light of his word. I believe this is what the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to help the Hebrew believers to do. Having encouraged them to let brotherly love continue, he is continuing to stir them up to love and good works, as he's encouraged them to do for themselves. But with wisdom from God, he is doing so with extraordinary care and grace. After such in-depth and intense teaching and admonition in the rest of the letter, It was necessary to alert and sober them. His words are full of meaning and impact on attitudes and relationships in the body of Christ. And they encourage and propel them toward Christ-like thinking and loving and moving together as one body, under one head, for one purpose. 
And so now, after urging the Hebrew believers to pray that the author would be able to return soon, he begins to pray for them in verses 20 and 21 and to pronounce a blessing upon them. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what for for them was a a really... uh, Again, carefully worded and, and positioned uh, text in the previous verses. He now turns to focus on our one head, our one Savior, our glorious Lord Jesus, who has purchased our salvation with his blood. <clears throat> Did you notice in that verse 20 that <clears throat> says that God brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant? Do you ever think about that? Consider what, what's behind those words. What does that really mean? How was it that he was raised from the dead through the blood that he shed. How's that work? I found a, a short passage in a book by John Piper. Highly recommend it, by the way. Uh, Passion of Jesus Christ. Just 50 short, just single page open page uh, just go, going over the <clears throat> different ways different things that was accomplished by Christ's suffering and death and this short passage which I want to read to you now <clears throat> speaks of how Christ suffered and died to achieve his own resurrection from the dead And it references this very verse. The death of Christ did not merely precede his resurrection. It was the price that that obtained it. That is why Hebrews 13.20 says that God brought him up from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of the covenant is the blood of Jesus. As he said in Matthew 26.28... This is my blood of the covenant. When the Bible speaks of the blood of Jesus, it refers to his death. No salvation would be accomplished by the mere bleeding of Jesus. His bleeding to death is what makes his bloodshedding crucial. It's referring to his death. Now what is the relationship between this shedding of Jesus' blood and the resurrection? The Bible says that he was raised not just after the bloodshedding, but by it. In this verse 20. This means that what the death of Christ accomplished was so full and so perfect that the resurrection was a reward 
and vindication. The Bible even uses that same word at one point in one of the ancient uh, short creeds. Vindicated. It was the reward and vindication of Christ's achievement in death. The wrath of God was satisfied with the suffering and death of Jesus. The holy curse against sin was fully absorbed. The obedience of Christ was completed to the fullest measure. His whole life, including as Philippians chapter 2 talks about, even to death on a cross. Completed to the fullest measure. The price of forgiveness was totally paid. The righteousness of God was completely vindicated. It is finished. All that was left to accomplish was the public declaration of God's endorsement. This he gave by raising Jesus from the dead. When the Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's 1 Corinthians 15. The point is not that the resurrection is the price paid for our sins. The point is that the resurrection proves that the death of Jesus is an all-sufficient price. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then his death was a failure. God did not vindicate his sin-bearing achievement, and we are still in our sins. That's the logic of that passage. But in fact, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Romans 6.4 The success of his suffering and death was vindicated. And if we put our trust in Christ, we are not still in our sins. For by the blood of the eternal covenant, the great shepherd has been raised and lives forever. I hope that's a blessing to you as well as a, I think a good explanation of what's behind that verse. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever Amen so in verse 21 when it speaks of making us complete it's again not in, in terms of perfection in this life but in completion, in, in, uh, in maturity, and, and uh, several translations use the phrase equip. Since being adequately equipped to do his will. Complete, having all that we need. Isn't that the promise? Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? He will deliver on his promise. And he has already delivered. He's given us a a necessary advance. Read and consider Ephesians 1. Blessed with every spiritual blessing, heavenly places in Christ. And having been sealed by the Holy Spirit, And then, as we walk with him, 
He is making us complete, making us able, equipping us to do his will here and now. And he is working in us what is pleasing in his sight. Now what would that be? Why? We just referred to Romans 8.32. Remember what precedes that is, is verse uh, 29 that speaks of why he's justified us. Why? What's his intent? To make us like Christ. And he will deliver on this promise too. That's what he's up to here. This, this great benediction is speaking of, of him working in us to make us able to do his will. And to, in the process, make us like his son. This is God's work in us. And he will deliver on that promise. Because he will deliver on a promise to his son. Which I want to read from Psalm 2, verse 8. I'll begin with verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then this promise. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. God is in the process. His word is sure. His promise is sure. It's as if it's already done. And yet he is in the process of doing that right now. Giving Christ the nations from out of every nation, tribe, tongue. He is bringing people. And it is our great privilege to, as we walk with him, in obedience, being fully persuaded about not just our leaders, not just about an apostle, the plan of the church, but the great shepherd himself. Be fully persuaded and confidence in him and also with an understanding of what he is trying to accomplish. God is at work both to will and to do his good pleasure, which is to give the nations to his son and, in the, and to make those that he chooses and, and brings to him, to make them like his son. This is his great promise to Christ. And it's a great privilege. And it's, you know, taking the, the thought that David shared earlier, privilege and responsibility. And so then we come to verse 22, which is, <clears throat> it, it's, it, it strikes me as the, a, just a, Short word stuck in the middle of this prayer, the request for prayer, 18 and 19 verses, and then his prayer for them, 20 and 21, and then in 23 through 25 where he's going to uh, this, this greetings, but it also contains the, the drawing them together in the gospel work. But in between there, is verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, for I have written to you 
in a few words. Take note of what it immediately follows. (laughs) The last words, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then I appeal to you, brethren. There's a, it's like a, 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 a jerk start on a different point. It immediately pulls you out. It, you, if, you're, if you were reading this the first time, and, or, or you were listening, that has to have an impact. He's progressing, and then he goes over, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. And then back to talking about Timothy and they're going to come shortly and greet everybody. Consider the intentionality of that. He doesn't dwell on it, but he makes a point of pointing back to not getting lost in the greatness of, of, the, of praise, praising God with a whole heart, absolutely rejoicing in his great plan as summarized in verse 20 and 21. But yet he's pointing back, I wrote this letter. And actually this letter, I, I believe at least as much, if not more, than any other letter in the Bible here. This is more of a, a written, something written down that would have otherwise, if he could have, he would have stood and delivered. It, if you think about it, it, it comes out that way. Even the way it starts, just an abrupt start in verse in chapter one. From start to finish, it, it, is, it is intense and is weighty. And he appeals to them, bear with this word. The very the very word and the, the phrase, word of exhortation, it's, it carries with it this meaning. It's, it's the word logos, Greek, that, that, that carries with it. It's, it's not just the words. It's, it's pointing to the thought behind the words. The message being communicated. Bear with this message of exhortation that has been communicated to you. <laughs> it may strike us odd that he then says... For I have written to you in a few words. Or I, I, I like NIV's translation of this. That phrase, it says, In fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Now, I don't know if you're with me on this, but <clears throat> the thought that came to me when I just considered that one especially, I thought, Jude. Jude is brief. <laughs> Hebrews is not brief. So is he just using hyperbole? I don't think so. There were times in this letter when uh, mid-chapters, maybe chapter 5, chapter 6, when he said, I, we just really don't have time to, to go down this path. like to, but no, we, we don't have time. I've got to move on. He had a few key things in mind. Consider that that most of Hebrews, at the, the, least the majority of it, I would say, was, was really delving into 
the, the shadows of the Old Testament because he's making the case Old Testament, New Te- Old Covenant, New Covenant, and not just talking about them as separate entities, but that this one was a type and a foreshadowing. So let's, the reality has come. So this is where we need to be. It's better. And it was intended from the beginning. And so all of this, consider the few pages here. Would you consider this brief compared to this? In comparison, it's brief, isn't it? He had a daunting task. And he was brief and compared to what he might have been. I believe that's what he had in mind. But his call is to bear with that, that word of exhortation. For this, for the audience, for those that were receiving this letter, their life had been wrapped up in the old covenant. It was necessary that they be uh, established for some reestablish, for some pulling them back from the brink of being discouraged and just falling back, falling back, falling away toward that, toward the shadow, which means without the substance. A shadow has no substance. What rings in my ears is the Hebrews 2.1. Therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. So this verse 22 in chapter 13 is a, a reminder and a pointer to that. It's as if he's saying, don't set this aside. This exhortation was necessary to give and it is necessary for you to give heed. This spoken word written down. It's always good to remind ourselves that behind the context of the letter and the writer and and who's receiving it is the Holy Spirit of God bringing forth his word that was to be carried forward for, for now two millennia. And so we come to then the last section of uh, verses 23 through 25. It's kind of like the wrap-up of the wrap-up. Because this whole chapter, verse 13, is, is a series of, of short, very short, one verse, two verse kind of exhortations and points and reminders. But I want to Calls back to remembering uh, where, where we started at the beginning of this message that uh, the, the wording, the purpose of the, of the care in, in the word choice, the thoughts, the, the purpose of drawing them in. And even in these short verses, he's doing the same thing. And he's doing so in a very uh, free-flowing way, speaking of another brother that they know, Timothy, and that letting them know he's, he had evidently been in prison and is, is now have been set free. And why would that be? 
See, different, in different ways, these are uh, flushing out a little bit some single-line exhortations given previously in the, in the uh, this very chapter. Remember verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. The call is to take part in heart first. And so he's giving them an opportunity. He's talking about a person with a name they know. Evidently, Timothy has been there and they know him. And he's saying, he's been, he has, has asked them to pray that he would be able to come soon. And now he's linking this with Timothy. And implicitly, their gospel ministry, their work, their service of Christ and their calling. And that calling has in part resulted in this connection. If not Maybe some churches planted with this wider set, but at the very least, there, there's obviously there's been a, a visiting of them and, a, and a, a taking part in life and sharing the word with them. And so <clears throat> it implicitly reminds about the gospel. If you would share in the joys of the gospel, you must also share in the suffering. That suffering, there's several aspects to it. There's a suffering of mortifying our own flesh. And we're, we're told that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your statutes. And then verse 71, shortly after, he recognizes and proclaims, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Now I keep your word. So it's, there's a personal mortification of flesh. There's a suffering for righteousness for the name of Christ. It was mentioned earlier today. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Paul in his second letter to Timothy all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Timothy has experienced this. So the suffering comes from a co-laboring in fields ripe for harvest. That's where you will get opposition. Our, our enemy, the enemy of our souls is constantly looking to trip us up in any way he can to get us sidetracked, uh, discouraged, distracted. But for those, if, if we are involved in, in, in uh, putting forth the gospel in the name of Christ, speaking of his salvation, calling people to recognize what God has done and what he has called, that there is no other name among men whereby we must be saved, then there will be suffering involved with that. And the call is that we uh, continue on. We have a promise that, for in, that in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In this very letter, uh, 
chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We are to know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15. And finally, in Romans 8, 17. We are joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. God gives us an opportunity to share in that glory. We're joint heirs with him, if indeed we suffer with him. And so then, in verse 24, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Again, I mentioned that even that verse, that that same wording is used. So in that way, he's connecting again to what he has said previously in the chapter. But this, this is a, a, an encouraging of the sharing in the life and love of the brethren. He started out this chapter, remember, let love of the brethren continue. And so, and, and he's in little ways, sometimes uh, clearly spoken and sometimes subtly put forward. But all of it, he's encouraging to let love of the brethren continue, to consider one another in order to stir up good works. And he's done that for them here in, these, in this final passage. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let the mind of Christ be in you. That's the mind that Jesus showed us by example. And so when we greet others, it's not to be like the world, the rest of the world greeting one another. Hi, how are you? And no deeper. Is there not to be something uh, deep waters? Let's, let's draw it out. It's what this brother writing this letter is trying to do to stir up. He has believers from different areas greeting one another through this letter. He wants them to be stirred up, not just in their own locale, but but getting the sense of what God is doing throughout the earth. And then the final verse, grace be with you all. So we share in the sufferings and joys of the gospel, verse 23. We share in the life and love of the brethren, verse 24. And above all, we share in the all-encompassing grace of God. A call back to verse 9, even, where he's cautioning about getting pulled off into strange doctrines. He says, in contrast, for it is good for the, that the heart be established by grace, and not these other things that are not helpful. And so that concludes Hebrews. May the Lord bless his word and to accomplish in us what 
what he was endeavoring through this letter to accomplish in these other believers. So if we can uh, get by the, the length of the letter, but we can uh, acknowledge that this is a masterful brief exhortation. The praise doesn't go to the author, human author of the letter, but the Holy Spirit who used the author, his thoughts, and his pen. I'd like to just conclude with some, some uh, scriptures that lead us to appreciate uh, God's wisdom and the, the uh, huge authority and great potential benefit of, of sharing his word with one another. In Proverbs 12 and verse 18, last part of verse 18, and it's in contrast to one who speaks and it pierces like a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. And this is something the Lord so impressed upon me uh, regarding this, this chapter in this text. This again, especially for the, the, the connection with verse 17 and 18. The tongue of the wise promotes health. That's what he was going after, I believe. And in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, <clears throat> the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well driven nails given by one shepherd. And this brief exhortation was given by the one great shepherd of the sheep. Let us love one another and speak his word to one another. And First Peter 4, verse 11, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it, as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, I thank you for this weighty brief exhortation this letter to the Hebrews for the for the great benefit you have desired to bring to us through the study of it the preaching of it you desire Lord with your words of wisdom to us to promote health And so I pray this back to your Father that you would uh, cause it to not return to your void with respect to us. There have been many believers down through the years who have, who have read this and benefited 
and in this very exhortation that the writer can, uh, toward the end speaks of uh, to his listeners to bear with this word of exhortation. It is because there were some who, who were in danger of falling back. So down through the ages there have been, no doubt, a, a varied response. But we acknowledge, Lord, your, uh, your shepherding. Ultimately, you watch out for our souls, and we thank you. We acknowledge that you have spoken this letter and even this message today to promote health. That's your purpose in it. And we magnify and glorify your name. Acknowledge your authority over us. Pray that you would find in us those who would be persuaded of your, of your heart and purpose to us, of the truth and power of your promises as administered by the Holy Spirit. Have your way in our lives. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.